Vic is back. You are listening to The Bill Podcast. With me, Natalie Rolls. Brought to you in association with georgefairbrother.com. shop.saturdaymorningpress.co.uk and cityfiction.co.uk Hello, all you lovely Bill fans. I hope you are well. It's almost time to start a brand new The Bill Podcast trilogy. But first... It's time to grow your The Bill book collection. To celebrate the 40th anniversary of Wooden Top, the makers of Witness Statements are proud to present Reaching a Verdict, Reviewing the Bill, 1983-1989 by Edward Kellett. Featuring a foreword by the Bill's legendary production scheduler, Nigel Wilson, and an afterword by Tim Vaughan, the series' longest-running script editor. This brand new 260-page academic investigation of the bill in the 1980s has been described as an essential companion for the most avid and knowledgeable The Bill fan. Reaching a Verdict by Edward Kellett. Available now from Amazon, Waterstones or on special offer from devonfirebooks.com. Now it's time for you to enjoy the first part of this special trilogy with my old Sunhill sparring partner, Raji James, who, as DS Vic Singh, joined the bill at the same time as me. We start off by chatting about Raji's recent work on Hollyoaks, playing a spoof version of himself on a podcast his background and early days as an actor, and how before he landed the role on the bill, he starred in the absolutely massive big screen hit, East is East. Oh my goodness. Hello. Hello. (laughs) Got all my Raji tabs open. Oh, God. It was so da-da-da. What have you found out? You wrote the biography, rajajames.com. Oh, yeah. No, that's Geo. Uh, so years ago, I used to do a podcast, which was a comedy thing, where I played a sort of parody of myself. It was with two comedians. Ray Peacock. Yes. And we had this super fan, um, Geo, who lives in Australia. And she just started this... Um, rajajames.com thing and she was so lovely she was like constantly updating it every time I did something she would update it and uh, yeah she's just really lovely (laughs) what a nice fan and she said you have the longest eyelashes and chocolate brown eyes I mean the bit about the eyelashes is true I've I've had them measured by the Guinness Book of Records and they are the longest on the planet 
I remember them. <laughs> I think everyone used to comment. They were just like, I think he used to do, I think he used to do eyelash kisses. What are they called? Eskimo kisses. Is that a thing? I don't know. I remember there was an episode we did with Liverpudlian director who liked to shoot things a lot in one Dead day. Maguire. Maguire. And we were doing an episode with him and we were in a, a toilet somewhere in southeast London. He had the camera to my side and I was looking in a mirror and the character, whoever it was I was following, went into the stall behind me and I had to turn to look. And we got up to about take five of just me doing this look. And I said, what? And he goes, no, go again, go again. And I said, Jed, what's going on? What, why, what am I doing wrong? Just tell me and I'll get it right. And he said, well, I don't want to make you self-conscious. And I said, well, no, come on, just tell me because we're on take five and this is taking forever. And he showed me a playback. Um, what was happening was as I was turning my head, I was blinking and because it was a real close-up from the side, all you saw was my eyelashes going <laughs> across the screen. And he said, if you could just turn your head without blinking, that would really help. Oh, that's <laughs> so funny. Jeb Maguire, he used to love the long shots, didn't he? He used to really yeah. go for those. I used to like that. Sort of had that, had a real energy to it when you had, especially when we were doing big briefing scenes and he'd want to do them all in one shot. And you'd have someone come in with a bit of paper and then that bit of paper would go to someone else and then the camera would turn and, it, you know, it was all that kind of everyone getting the timing of the lines right. So your Hollyoaks. I saw a clip. There was a, I mean, it was a really heavy scene. So, yeah, I, I was sort of, I only joined the show to do this one storyline regarding historical rape and uh, a result of which is I discover I have a son that yeah. I didn't know about. Because of pandemic and various other bits and pieces, uh, it's taken a little bit longer to to get the story done. It's a fantastic place to work, and it's very weird because it's one of those shows that I think because of my age, I've always just been outside of the demographic. So I was in my sort of 20s when it started, and it was very much a teen show then. And now it has an audience that are sort of more your... 20 and 30 year olds i'm now 50 you know so i've never really watched the show but having been up there and watched a lot of it since being up there i mean they're such an amazing bunch of people and their and their ethos of the way they work and and the storylines they cover it's an absolutely lovely place but for me it is in liverpool so it's a real uh, logistical kind of schlep because i now live right down on the south coast where are so, you? Uh, I'm in an area called Hailing Island, which is near Portsmouth. Okay. Uh, oh, so that is a slept. Do you drive? Do you drive to get to... I do. Ooh. Yeah. 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 Hard one. Yeah. And, and as you know, sometimes with continuous dramas, schedules change very, very quickly. And particularly with COVID, filming day would start and someone would phone in and say, oh, I've got COVID or oh, I've got symptoms, I've got to go for a test and that. So they'd have to rejig the schedule. And, you know, if I'm sitting down here on the South Coast and they suddenly think, oh, we could get Raji in for a scene this afternoon, it it sort of becomes a bit of a, oh, we're going to You know. <laughs> Crazy, I've got to get to Liverpool. Yeah. Quite Merton days, was it, when you just sort of... No. Well, Merton for me was easy because I lived in South East London anyway. Yeah. So it was like a 20-minute drive, if that, 
And that was only because of the traffic. Oh, we were so lucky, weren't we? That was such yeah. a dream. I remember going past Clapham. I was in Camden at the time and I had to drive from Camden to South Wimbledon at the beginning. And then I was just like, oh. no, I'm not going to do this. If I'm contracted and I'm here for a bit. So I I stopped off in Clapham, had a look around and thought, that's where I'm staying. Oscar Sarah, I seem to remember you had a place near the tube. Exactly. Yeah. For that reason, I think, I was just like, (laughs) this make life easy. And I suppose now for you, it's like your family, you live somewhere else. We all get to different parts in our life. And it's like we we just change to live to live. For me, that's been a huge shift over the past, I'd say, probably about five years. I was doing a lot of teaching at university. And and I was really, really enjoying it. Well, I started doing some in Portsmouth with the A-level students and then, um, because I was living in High Wycombe, so I started doing some work for um, Bucks New Uni and developed a bit of their degree course and and started doing workshops and modules uh, there and I was really, really enjoying it. And and then one of the tutors that had been there who'd gone on to the Middlesex Uni then asked me to do some stuff for them. So I started doing stuff for them, but it was all on, on Zoom because of the pandemic and everything. And I was doing all that sort of stuff. And my wife and I just sort of got it into our heads that we don't need to be within easy access to London anymore. So we looked to move a couple of years ago and then found this place and moved here. And I think it was the week after we moved, I suddenly had four jobs lined up. <laughs> uh, one of them was in Cardiff, brilliant. Uh, one was in London and, and then one was in Liverpool and I had the stuff to do with Middlesex Uni. And it was like, oh, brilliant. Now that we've moved as far away as we possibly can, <laughs> I've now got all this work. But, you know, you can, you can never tire these things. So I'm going to go right back. So okay. In your family, were there any actors, artists back in, in, in time when you were growing up? Did you get the bug early on? How did it all happen? Uh, no. So I'm mixed race and my mum is English and my parents divorced when I was quite young. So all of my upbringing and my sort of family influences have been my mum's side of the family. So my grandfather uh, was ex-Navy. My mum's a nurse and my stepfather was uh, a milkman uh, at the time. And so there was no creativeness um, within the family. But when I was at junior school, I had a teacher called Glynis Bennett, and um, she encouraged me to go to this thing called Portsmouth Drama Centre. And so I started going to that, doing you know a- amateur dramatics. And one of the first shows that I was involved in properly um, was a production of Treasure Island. On the night of the first performance, one of the actors of the main characters um, didn't turn up. And so this, I was, I think I was about nine, 10. They just said, look, could you play this part? And up to that point, I'd like four lines. I'd come on and deliver things to the set and go off and say the odd line as a little pirate person. And they suddenly gave me this script with like loads of lines. And so I would be backstage learning the lines and then go on stage and say them. 
And because I've been watching all the rehearsals all the time we've been rehearsing, because I didn't have a lot to do in the play, I just suddenly found myself sort of doing it, really, and knowing where to stand. And if I didn't quite remember the line properly, I, I sort of generally somehow managed to say something that was, you know, reasonably suitable to the story and to the the kind of style of the piece. And then by the end of it, suddenly before I knew it, the play had ended. Everyone was applauding and all that sort of stuff. And it was just an amazing feeling because it was just like, oh my God, how have I done that? How have I done a play with all these people and not even, you know, I hadn't been directed or anything because I was just standing in. And I, and I didn't realise until the play ended, they'd expected me to go on with the script in my hand. Oh, and you filtered it all through but, naturally. Um, but I didn't. Fantastic. So it's called the Trauma Centre. That's that's really how it all started. Didn't you have an RAF thing as well? Yeah, that was because my family. <clears throat> I mean, my brother had been in the navy, and as I said, my grandfather was in the navy. I've got cousins at Royal Navy, and I'd always done uh, army cadets and things all the way through school. So I sort of put it in my head that I was going to go into the military somewhere, and I really, really, really wanted to be a pilot. So all the way through my A-levels, I was planning to go on to do uh, a degree as part of the RAF scholarship scheme. But then um, there was questions about my eyesight, and then it was sort of they were starting to talk about, well, you might be able to be a navigator, but not a pilot, because there's different criteria. And then while all that was going on, my A-level drama tutor, uh, Jim McCarthy explained to me that acting could actually be a job. And once he kind of explained that and talked me through what drama colleges were and that kind of thing, I started applying to drama colleges. I took a year out after my A-levels. And then that was it. That was once I, once I sort of understood that drama colleges existed and that acting was actually something you could get paid to do. That was it. That was kind of like, oh no, that's what I'm doing. Fantastic. And that's so. That's been it, <laughs> Mister Mister McCarthy. Thank you very much. Yes, yes, Jim McCarthy, a very, very influential uh, man in my life. Yeah. Where were you at Drama College? Uh, I went to Welsh College of Music and Drama uh, in Cardiff, which is now the Royal Welsh College of Music and Drama. Three years of just learning, 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 and also. Uh, I, I worked a lot because I, I wasn't from a well-off family, so I had two or three part-time jobs while at college. And it was just that whole thing of living life, you know, and sort of finding your own way and paying rent and dealing with bills and bank loans and all that sort of stuff. That was a very educational time. My boy is actually quite switched on to like his older friends he's he's 15 but the 16 year olds that he knows they've all got their little jobs now so he's really excited yeah. about that and I, I was really lucky because my dad had a garage so my holidays oh. ends I was in the garage so I you know we sold whatever inside the shop I was in mechanics type garage everything from petrol to cars to mechanics to the car sprayers yeah. at the back I'd be on the, you know, the sausage roll run, you know, the 11 o'clock run. Be like, I'm sure it's time. I've got to go and do that. And then I'd be, I'd go off on my roller skates, come back and 
serve the petrol. But that having that confidence with life, with people, yeah. people skills, I think that's really important. So that's what I, I hope he will learn. And I think how, you know, the drama days, the, the school days, those educational mixing work with life skills were really important. I also found, and I don't know if this is something to my personality, but all through my life, all of the non-acting jobs I've done have all been jobs that involve interacting. You know, they're either direct sales or <clears throat> so I've been front of house in a the theatre, I've worked in God knows how many bars. I used to do a sandwich round where I'd go into people's offices and sell sandwiches during lunchtime, you know. So I think that opportunity to meet so many different people and to hear so many different people's stories and different ways of being and different environments work-wise. I've been really fortunate, I think, to, you know, it's quite rare now if I get a script that I don't immediately think of someone I've met and go, oh yeah, that, it's that type of person, whether it be an old customer or an old boss. Or... And the minicabbing, was that, you were minicabbing as well? <laughs> I've <laughs> I read that and I was like, oh, I could just love to get in a cab with you. You would be brilliant. Those eyelashes would be all oh, no, no, away. I wasn't, I wasn't very good. So it's quite a difficult time for me. Uh, I just I had a, I just had my first son and I wasn't working a lot. We were quite skint at the time. And so my dad, my stepdad, my dad, had a taxi company in Portsmouth. So I said, well, why not come down and we'll get you through the, um, basically like the knowledge. Yeah. And you can run a cab for a few months over Christmas and stuff. It'll be busy and, you know, get yourself back on your feet. So I thought, okay, I'll do that. And then the knowledge, as it were. It's three years, isn't it? It's a three-year no, thing. No, not, not in Portsmouth, it wasn't. No. <laughs> It was it, it was it was turn up to the um, council offices, and they sit you down, and they they have like this form, this like questionnaire, where it's like, if you drove to the so and so community centre, like I think one of them, and I might get the names wrong, but it was something like, if you drove to the Milton Road community centre, what road would you be on? You've got well, Milton Road, <laughs> you know. Uh, yeah. And it was all questions that were kind of like really old. The, the answer was in the question. <laughs> but on to, and you had to get like, I think it was 90% to pass somehow, even though I bore, born, well, not born, but I was brought up in Portsmouth my whole school life. And there were just bits I didn't know. So I got something like 86%. So I said to the lady, oh, what do I do? You know, because you sit there while they mark it. And she said, well, you've got to wait 24 hours and then you come back and sit the test again. <laughs> so I was like, oh, okay, okay. So I went away and I s spoke to my man and I said, look, you know, I think I didn't know this and there was a question about that. I didn't know where that was. So he showed me on maps and we sort of talked through it. Two days later, I go back, sat down to do the test, thinking it'd be a similar but different test. And not only was it the same questions, <laughs> but it was the form I'd already filled in. <laughs> so... So they even had where I'd got it wrong, <laughs> and and I just had to fill in the spaces where oh. where they marked. So yeah, so I I passed that. I love that. <laughs> I think it would have been harder to fail, to be honest. But yeah, my first day on that wasn't particularly good. I can't remember if it was Christmas Eve or 
the day before Christmas Eve, but I, it was a black cab, you know, proper black cab. Yeah. And I was on my parents' drive and I was reversing it. I'd had my mom and my dad and my partner at the time and my little baby in her arms. I reversed it into a bollard in the middle of the road and pierced the uh, diesel tank that was under the vehicle on a, on a concrete plinth. So then no, the tank hit this plinth and it was just diesel all over the road. Ow! So, ow! Everyone out! Yeah, it was all a bit of a panic. And oh my. Uh, my dad had to spend uh, Christmas Day driving around the South Coast trying to get a replacement diesel tank so that we could get the car back on the road because every reason it was off the road was costing the money. So, yeah, it wasn't a very particular success st- start that. But, um, yeah. Dick to action. In family business. <laughs> You're not supposed to be in the real world. You're not supposed to do stuff in the real world. Cannot be trusted. You've got two children. Yes, got two, two boys. Two boys. I can't remember if you had them when we were at the bill or not. Um, my second, uh, my youngest uh, was born while I was at the bill. Um, so that was 2001. Whoa. So you were 2000 to 2002 at the bill. So East is East, yeah. Raji. Was that before? Yeah, we filmed in 98, but it came out in 99. Yeah. That was incredible. Abdul, you played Abdul. I did. And I've just, weirdly, yesterday, I worked out, and I don't know why this only just occurred to me, but I'm now older than Ampuri was when he was playing our dad. Oh. So he, he was 48 when we did East is East and I'm now 52 and it's just like oh my god and I don't know why that sort of makes me go oh sugar what's happening because I don't know it's just it feels weird to be the age that he was I don't yeah yeah age thing is very odd it's all strange you look great (laughs) thank you seriously you do you I don't think you've changed that much at all I think I don't quite like all this too yeah no you look, I do, you look exactly the same. That's weird. I don't. It's your hair is bigger. Your hair was curly, wasn't it? Yeah, Maybe it still it is. is. Look, I had some colour put in it yesterday. It went a bit funny. My hairdresser, she's great. She sort of paints paints it on like I'm a painting. It's like, okay, we'll go with that. See you next time. Okay, questions. Topic of the bill because we are the bill. Yeah. Um, do you remember the casting process? Do you remember actually getting the job? Uh, I do. Just before the bill, I'd said to my, my partner, look, things aren't going brilliantly well. Isn't that weird that you did East is East that was like a 10 million box office hit? Yeah. yeah. This is the craziness of this this business. You yeah. would think All it right. would be bang 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 and you're being no. it would be the game changer no, I, funny, and it? it's weird because i've never had i've never had that like every job i've done that's been high profile and you sort of trick yourself into thinking right i've started now i'm, I'm going to get that next and then it's going to go and go no it's never happened pretty much every time a big job has ended it's like starting again and i mean east disease for me was was extraordinary because it was such a big film you know, international thing. And it was unlike anything I was prepared for. I mean, even while we were making it, we thought it was going to be a small art house type film. 
And then uh, Miramax got involved in the distribution and suddenly it opened at 200 cinemas. When we were making it, if it had opened at 20 cinemas, we'd have been delighted. But yeah, it was huge. And the day, well, the first week that East Disease was out, I was still doing my sandwich route. Fantastic. Because, you know, as far as the job was concerned, for me, that had been a year earlier because it had taken a year to come out. So I'd had a year of bits and pieces of work, but nothing major. And and we'd sort of been pinning, my agent and I had been pinning our hopes, as it were, on the release of the film because it's like, right, when that happens, you'll have this profile and you can go and do stuff. So, yeah, I was doing my sandwich round and I got an audition for, uh, well, I won't say what show it was actually because I don't want to be horrible. <laughs> but it was a very well-known TV show. <laughs> and I went to the audition and I was sitting there in the audition with the casting person in front of me, she had my CV and photo in her hand. And she said to me, oh, have you seen that film, East is East? It's brilliant. You should watch it. It's really good. Blah, 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 blah. And I, and I was sitting there and my brain was sort of going, is she, is she joking? Is yeah. this a weird comedy sketch that I don't know the lines to? And I said, um, I said, I'm sorry, it's what? And she said, yeah, it's really good. She said, oh, I saw it last night. And I said, you saw it last night? And she went, yeah, yeah, yeah. She said, have you seen it? And I was like, have you, have you got my CV? And she went, yeah. And I said, what's literally the first thing on my CV? And she looked at her and she went, oh, I thought that, was, I thought that meant you were in the play. And was, what? It says the movie, East Lane's director, Damien O'Donnell. And lights are in those people's hands. <laughs> yeah. And... I, I don't know if it's a, and I'm not being horrible here, I don't think. I don't know if it's a, a skin color thing. I don't mean, that, oh, we all look alike, but I just think sometimes people from different categories uh, don't get the same kind of progression of career that other people take as standard. It's like you've got to prove yourself every time every single time you've got to start again start from scratch and and go again and do you know what i don't mind that i actually enjoy that i enjoy the fact that there's no rules and and you've got to kind of just keep working keep working you've got keep, to keep, swimming. keep swimming yeah so sorry i didn't answer your question just to say the thing about bill the audition so i'd spent six months phoning casting directors phoning directors researching and this is before the internet was properly so it was all phone calls and looking up things in books and going to libraries and nothing was coming nothing at all and then i got an audition for the bill and it was to play a part in i think it was going to be in three episodes which was uh an armed police officer in three episodes so i went down and i met jed jed mcguire for the part and oh. read through the scenes and did the bits and pieces. And they said, oh, can you do it a different way? And can you do it this? And can you do it that? And I thought it was quite a, a long audition considering it was for three episodes. And it wasn't like a major, major part in those episodes. It was just a, a another armed police officer who was part of the team. Uh, and then I didn't hear anything. And I was phoning my agent and it's like two weeks went by. And I, and I said, look, what's happening with this thing? Because we're supposed to be going a whole day to France and, you know, don't know what to do. And he said, look, not hearing anything. So 
just go, go. I can't tell you to not take your holiday, go. Because he knew it'd been a long time since we'd been on holiday and that we'd been booked this for like a year in advance. And so I went on this little holiday and um, as we were literally getting onto the ferry with the car, he phoned to say, you've not got the part. Um, he said, I'm really sorry. He said, but they've told us to please just wait because there might be something else. And I was like, oh, okay. So... Anyway, I spent the whole week on holiday thinking, well, geez, that's it. You know, I'm at the end of my six-month promise. I've not got anything. So I've got to start thinking about other work and, and what I'm going to do for a career. And, you know, do I go into catering? Do I go and work in a pub, become a manager? What do I do? So we are on holiday for a week. And then on the drive back, the car broke down uh, just before we got on the ferry. And we had to get a recovery vehicle. So we're getting off the ferry the other side in a recovery vehicle with my car broken at the back, no work, feeling really awful, had a terrible week, really. Oh, just, you know, just going, oh, God, I don't know what I'm doing in my life, you know. And everything was just falling apart. And then we're in this recovery vehicle going up the motorway, heading home. And my agent phoned to say, right, it's a bit weird, but they want you to start tomorrow, um, which was the Monday, and it's a six-month contract. And I, and I was like, what, what's happened? <laughs> what, what's going on? And so that was it. So I just turned up on the Monday, not knowing anything about the character, not knowing anything at all. And I went shopping with the costume people in the morning and was filming in the afternoon. How fantastic. That's why we love it, because everything can change like yeah. that. So that first filming day on the Monday, so you went shopping. I remember those, they were so lovely, the costume people, and they took you off and made you feel fantastic. You go into your character and then you're filming. So you, do you remember that first day? It was a, a scene with Eric Richard, who years ago, my very first TV job was on the bill. It was him and Phil Whitchurch that were the officers that arrested me and stuff when I was playing his part yeah so years later now my first scene as a regular on the bill was bumping into eric richard in the corridor and being rude to him because my character is a bit sort of flash and cocky and and he sort of looks at me as if say oh you're rude sort of thing and i'm like ah well man you know and uh <laughs> fantastic yeah. so that was a first yeah, memory first yeah, day yeah for me, it was just like, oh my God, it's Eric Richards. Oh my God. Because I was a huge fan of the show. It was just such a big thing for me to be able to be a police officer in that show. Because I think up to about a year before, it would have been impossible because the police in real life still had height restrictions. So they wouldn't have someone who looked like me in a police force. It was kind of a big thing for me from a representation point of view and and just that thing of my first TV job being playing this little scally who had three lines in the bill to now being on set as a regular. It's just extraordinary. There's loads more Bill Chat to come in parts two and three of my interview with Raji. Plus some hilarious stories from his work on EastEnders and Doctor Who, which had me in hysterics. If you can't wait until next month and would like to unlock the rest of Raj's trilogy now, 
plus my next podcast with Jane Wall and pal Aaron, you can do so now on patreon.com forward slash the bill podcast. Thank you for all your support and I'll see you again soon. Bye for now, you lovely people. Hello, this is Andrew McIntosh and you have been listening to The Bill Podcast brought to you in association with georgefairbrother.com, shop.saturdaymorningpress.co.uk and cityfiction.co.uk. The Bill Podcast is presented by the fabulous Natalie Rolls. Natalie and I have been back in the studio recording Series 2 of Letter from Helvetica, which will be released on all good podcasting platforms later this year. If you'd like to hear your name on the closing credits of the next eight episodes of our Top 40 Fiction podcast, you can support us on coffee.com forward slash Letter from Helvetica. The Bill Podcast is produced by Oliver Crocker. Co-produced by Ben Adams, Glenn Allen, Rob Cook, Sarah Kuiper, Calvin Millward, Maz Mirabilis, Alex Mockler and Simon Wolfe. Executive produced by Isabel Allen, Ben Ashmore, Alana Dewar, Andrew Dyack, Tony Drury, Paul Dunn, Dan Evans, George Fairbrother, Luke Hegarty, Alan Hunting, Edward Kellett, James Ledane, Lucy McNeil, Gary Moncur, Claire Norbury, Laura Penny Fay, Michael Seeley, Tom Sherrington, Angel Stannard, Patrick Stratford, Michael Weil, and Sarah Went. The theme music is composed by Matthew Annis. For over 80 hours of exclusive The Bill podcast content, including cast and crew commentaries, reunions, reactions, pilgrimages, and much more, join the investigation. Patreon.com forward slash The Bill Podcast. Oh, you lucky devils.